Good morning. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us over at our chapel online and down at our Minnetonka campus as well. Great to uh, be with you all. My name is Dan Thorson. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Uh, we are continuing our series looking at First Peter. This was a letter uh, written by one of Jesus' disciples. And he was writing to uh, some of the earliest followers of Jesus in the first century. Now, these Christians that Peter's writing to are having a pretty tough go of things, to say the least. They're beginning to experience uh, persecution. Uh, they are experiencing a lot of hostility and harassment from, you know, just the Roman culture and the Roman Empire at large. And Peter is writing to them uh, to encourage them uh, while they are going through this struggle, uh, this pain, um, and this threat uh, in their lives. Uh, he's writing to guide them. Uh, he wants them to ultimately continue to cling uh, to what he calls this living hope. And the living hope is the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, Peter's letter really is all about the resurrection and what it means for both this life and the life to come. And the resurrection is the center of our Christian faith. It's not the existence of God or belief in God, although those are sort of prerequisites for uh, believing that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's not the center. Christianity isn't fundamentally about living a certain way. It's not primarily a religious framework to, to guide our lives. Uh, Christianity is founded, its foundation is on the resurrected Jesus. And Peter says as much in this letter. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in the first week of this series, Pastor Zach, uh, he showed us how Peter's reminding his readers about who they are because of the resurrection. Uh, because they have come to faith in Jesus, they are God's uh, chosen family. Um, and because of their hope and what the resurrection means for the eternal future, they should think of themselves as ultimately exiles in this world. And that's how we should think about ourselves as well. In the, in the second week, uh, we looked at how the resurrected Jesus is living hope for those who are experiencing pain and grief and suffering. The reality is that we are not promised an easy life. But the resurrection carries with it this promise that our suffering is only temporary and that death doesn't even have the final word. I do want to pause for a moment and I just want to acknowledge how ridiculously absurd belief in the resurrection is. Now, if you've been a part of Christianity for a while, maybe it doesn't feel that way, uh, but if you uh, aren't at a place of faith yet, if you're still seeking, if you're just kind of curious about this whole thing, it's very understandable to feel like this is a weird and frankly really hard thing to believe, that somebody rose from the dead. It's not like we're seeing people resurrected on a daily basis. The gospel proclamation that God became human, died and rose again, and is seated in heaven, ruling right now, is startling, it's confounding, it's amazing, and just, it's a crazy thing to believe. Now, that's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important because 
Peter's letter assumes that those reading it already believe in the resurrection. He's not trying to convince his audience of that fact. He's not going through the different reasons uh, for why uh, Jesus did raise from the dead, why we can believe that. He's just assuming that. And so if you don't believe yet, if you're still wondering, if you're still seeking, I just want to affirm that feeling. It's totally appropriate, totally normal. This is a crazy thing to claim. But I also want you to know that there are good rational reasons to believe that what these writers of scripture claim is actually true. There's good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if you're seeking, I encourage you to to seek that out, um, to do some inquiry, because many people have come to faith in Jesus by looking for proof of the resurrection. But again, Peter assumes that we all already believe in the resurrection and that Jesus rose from the dead. And what he's exploring then is the implication for the resurrection on our lives in the here and now. So what? So Jesus rose from the dead. What difference should that make? How shall we now live because Jesus rose from the dead? And and that's what we're going to explore together this morning. And I just want to dive right in. I want to read this whole chunk of scripture that we're going to Uh, dig into this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now... You must be holy in everything you do, just as God, who chose you, is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. So again, Peter's assuming that his audience believes in the resurrection of Jesus and he's addressing this question. How shall we now live? And there's three things that I want us to take away from this passage this morning. And the first one is this. The resurrection calls us to put our hope in the future, to put our hope in the future. Let's look at verse 13 again. He says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Now, if you've been around Christianity for any uh, stretch of time, you may have encountered uh, something that we often call the prosperity gospel. Uh, maybe you've uh, heard that before, maybe you haven't. The, the stereotype for that is this big, 
wealthy church with an incredibly wealthy preacher who regularly declares that if people obey God in the right ways, especially if you give generously, that God will respond in kind and pour out blessings on you, in particular financial blessings. That's the stereotype. Now, most uh, churches like ours would denounce that sort of thing. We would rightfully say that the prosperity gospel, this message, um, is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I found that the prosperity gospel, this message, is far more pervasive and far more influential than we might think. We might not know what to call it, but I think in some ways we've all sort of bought into this idea in some way, shape, or form. For example, it might show up in in some ways that we think or process or relate with God. You know, maybe we think, if I serve God, then all of my kids will believe in him when they're adults, right? We, we want to guarantee, right? If I do this, then this is going to be guaranteed for me. Maybe if I regularly attend worship, I'll avoid any major tragedies in life. Maybe we think, if I, if I surrender my life to Jesus, he'll make me happy and successful. That's sort of the prosperity message. This Our belief in this message also shows up in in sort of our confirmation bias, how we process life and the things that go on in life. When good things happen in our lives, when the things in particular that, that we want to happen, happen, we attribute it to God. Because of course God wants the things that we want in life, right? And then when things that we don't want in life happen, we say, well, God, come on, you don't want that, we gotta fix this. And then we, all of our prayers are oriented towards the things that we want, things that we define are good and better And we assume that also God wants those same things. We want the guarantees. But frankly, Scripture doesn't give us guarantees for how following Jesus will enhance our lives or make them easier or better. In this prosperity thinking, again, that I think we're all influenced by, I want you to notice that our hope is put almost entirely on this life. In the here and now, in our circumstances and what's going on and, you know, our wealth and our relationships and our, our hope is based right now in the here and now. But the guarantee of scripture isn't so much on the here and now as it is in the ultimate future. And that's what Peter is teaching his people. Put all your hope in the future. You know, Pastor Zach talked about this last week. The the Christians Peter is writing to, again, don't have it easy. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. And notice, he doesn't say to them, hey, if you just follow these five principles, all your problems will go away and life will be great. He doesn't do that. He says, put all your hope in the future, in the coming salvation when Jesus Christ comes again. I believe in general that the Western church, we've put too much emphasis on what God guarantees in the here and now. In what outcomes we can count on by our spiritual engagement and our relationship with him. But scripture puts the ultimate guarantee on what God will do in the future. That's what we can be confident about. That's what the resurrection points to. And the reason why this is so important is because many people, and maybe this is your story, came to Jesus with the promise that in doing so, you'll become healthier, wealthier, or happier, or a combination of all the three. And then when that doesn't happen for folks, 
When the life that we're promised doesn't seem to actualize in the way that we think it should, it leads to this cognitive dissonance. It can lead to shame because you wonder, well, why isn't faith working for me like it's working for all these other people in terms of making my life better, changing my circumstances? You know, you can fill in the blank. And it can lead to, to people just deconstructing or even walking away from Jesus entirely. And I don't want that for any of us. I really don't. So if you're discouraged because you don't feel like God is coming through for you in the way that you thought was guaranteed, promised, I, I hope that this helps a little bit. If you're at a loss because following Jesus hasn't changed your life, changed your circumstances the way that you thought that it should, I hope that you can hear Peter where he says, because of the resurrection, we put all of our hope into the future. That's guaranteed. That is our living hope. That's the first implication of the resurrection. The second one is this. The resurrection helps us trust in Jesus' life and teaching. 1 Peter 1.14 says this. So you must live as God's obedient children. Now I have three kids. Uh, Liam is my eldest. He just turned six on Friday. So we've kind of been having some birthday celebrations this weekend. If you see him later, you can wish him a happy birthday. Um, We have a daughter. She's almost four. Her name is Malia. And then our baby Theo is uh, just about eight months old. Now I think that God in his sovereign graciousness decided to give us the most strong-willed children on the planet. Uh, he, He really... Did. Now, my wife and I were holding out hope for the future, believing that uh, their personalities and this strong-willed nature of theirs will pay off and that someday they're going to be independent, um, capable adults that aren't going to be pushed around by anybody. But in the meantime, I resonate with Peter's audience. We are harassed and persecuted as parents. Any amens out there from other, other parents out there? Now, one of the ways that our, our strong-willed children show up is questioning why they need to be obedient. Why should they do the things the way we tell them to? Why should they listen right away? I mean, sometimes it feels like we have to tell them eight times before they even hear us, or we have to threaten to take away their donut at church, you know, for them to, you know, do what we want them to do. What we really want as parents is for our kids to trust us, right? We want them to trust that we actually want what's best for them. That our advice isn't just arbitrary. Not letting them eat five donuts isn't just because we don't want them to eat five donuts. It's actually going to go better for them if they listen to our advice. I think we're all a little bit like kids. We don't want to listen. We're naturally skeptical. We're all a little bit distrustful of authority. And deep down, we want to go our own way. We want to define what is good and bad. We want to determine what our lives ought to look like. Let's look again at at what Peter says. This is verse 21. He says, through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Somehow, in some way, what Peter's saying is that the resurrection, 
The resurrection of Jesus serves as proof. It gives us a reason to trust our heavenly father. And therefore it leads to us being obedient, being willing to trust that God has our best interest ultimately in mind. Now the resurrection wasn't a novel idea uh, in the first century for the Jewish people. Now, not everybody believed in the resurrection. There's a group we read in scripture, some religious leaders called the Sadducees. They didn't believe or teach the resurrection. But many other people did. In fact, many believed that God raising his people from the dead was the only way he could ultimately be faithful to his covenant promises to his people. Because he made all these promises a long time ago to Abraham. And there's been generation after generation after generation. A lot of people died. And so they're like, man, how can God be faithful and loving to his covenant people unless he raises them from the dead? And we see this in scripture. So, for example, uh, in the story of Lazarus, Lazarus is a friend of Jesus and he dies. And Jesus goes uh, to where he is buried and he's greeted by Martha, Lazarus' sister. And this is the exchange that Jesus and Martha have. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Resurrection was not a novel theological idea, but what people didn't expect and what the authors of scripture, including Peter, are unwrapping and wrestling with is that they didn't expect that God would raise one person from the dead in the middle of the story. Jesus' resurrection not only proved this idea that God would be faithful beyond death, but it also showed that Jesus' way of living, his values, his teaching, is what ultimately leads to life. And it's proof that we can trust him, that this is ultimately what is good. Jesus' way is God's way. Jesus' teaching and our obedience to that is what leads to life. The resurrection is the ultimate vindication and validation of Jesus' life and teaching. And therefore, it can lead us to trust and therefore obey. You know, many things that Jesus taught seem counterintuitive. I don't know if you've noticed that. Many of them are really difficult to understand, let alone to actually follow. Some of the things that Jesus teaches feel contradictory to what we think would lead to a fulfilling, meaningful, happy life. Look again at what Peter says, starting in verse uh, 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. Our default, just like a kid, is to satisfy our own desires. It's no different now than it was back then in the first century. In fact, I think right now in our culture, living for personal fulfillment, for happiness, for pleasure, is so widely accepted that even just the notion that God would maybe want something different for us feels oppressive and unjust. You know, towards the end of of Jesus' most famous and longest teaching, 
He says this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching people what faithfulness to God looks like, what a life following God looks like. In the small gate, the narrow road is a life lived in obedience to Jesus' teaching. And the broad road that leads to destruction is the life where we formulate for ourselves what we think is good and bad, what's going to lead to fulfillment and lead to happiness, where we chase after our own desires. Here's the question. Does doing doing things God's way, obeying Jesus, Will that always lead to a better life, an easier life, a more comfortable life? No. And I think we have to reckon with that reality. We want to believe that. We want to think that what God wants for us is exactly what we want for ourselves. God just wants us to be happy, to have a better life, a more comfortable life. But that simply isn't true. Again, think about the early Christians that Peter's writing to. The life and teaching of Jesus is in some ways harder than what we want for ourselves. It demands more from us. Following Jesus is often in conflict with our own desires, with our own ideas, with our own understanding for what we want life to be and what we want life to look like. You know, it's not natural, for example, for us to love our enemies, to forgive those who persecute us, to pray for those who don't like us. That's not our natural disposition. It isn't our default nature to put others first or to deny our own pursuit of self-fulfillment. You know, it's not easy to have integrity when lying or cheating in some way seems like it's going to make our life easier in the present moment. It's not easy to avoid lust or to contend with this idea that God actually values faithfulness over personal fulfillment. Have you ever thought, have you ever wondered, have you ever just been like, man, Jesus' teaching on sex, on generosity, on prayer, or other sort of love, it's just out of touch with reality. You know, maybe to you it seems archaic, unnatural, or like I said, even oppressive, because it demands too much from us. It asks that we give up too much. It seems more natural and easier to say that God wants what's good for us. God just wants us to be happy. But of course, then what we are assuming is that the good that God wants is the good that we want. And the happy that we want is the happy that we define. Far too often we're still like children. We're distrustful. We're wanting to go our own way. We're making justifications for the life that we want to live. And we often use Jesus' name and our faith in God to kind of justify that. And chase after our own desires. And define for ourselves this is what is ultimately going to lead to a fulfilling life. And what the resurrection proves, what the resurrection reveals is that in a mysterious, even upside-down way, life comes out of death. Abundance comes from not seeking our own way. Fulfillment comes from surrender and self-sacrifice, from sometimes even denying ourselves, rejecting our pursuit for what we want in life 
and choosing to be obedient to Jesus instead. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 to his disciples. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. This needs to be at the center of our understanding of a walk of discipleship. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And the reality is Jesus lived that way. He lived to serve others. He gave up his right to demand a certain level of comfort or happiness or self-actualization, self-fulfillment. He took up his cross and in the end, he was resurrected from the grave. Life was the result. Jesus claims in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10, he says, I have come to bring life and life to the full. The resurrection is evidence, it's proof that Jesus' life and teaching leads to eternal life. We can trust because of the resurrection that God's way is best. Even when it seems difficult, even when it appears backwards, even when it demands that we deny ourselves, that we reject things that we think seem so natural to want and desire in our lives, even when things just seem too counter-cultural. And again, we might not experience a perfectly happy life as a result of following Jesus. God is in no way against happiness and comfort. There's just no guarantee of that. But as we follow him, as we obey his teaching, We're trusting that this is ultimately what will lead to life, even life beyond death. The resurrection calls us to put our hope in the future. The resurrection helps us trust in Jesus' life and teaching. And finally, the resurrection calls us to love. In the Gospel of John, we read about Jesus telling his disciples about his coming death and then his coming resurrection. And I want you to notice how he connects resurrection with love. This is what he says. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them, so here's that connection again, the resurrection and obedience, trust in God, are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. The resurrection of Jesus is God's love expressed to us. The Lamb of God slain for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And love isn't merely a feeling. It's not just sentimentality or wanting people to be generically happy. Again, to just kind of pursue the life that you want to live and, you know, good for you. No, love wants the ultimate best for another person. Love leads us to give of ourselves, to deny ourselves for the sake of others, like Jesus did. Love is sacrificial. It lets go. And this love calls us to love each other in the same way. And this is what Peter is trying to help his people understand. He says this in verse 22. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. It says elsewhere in scripture that we love because 
he first loved us. My prayer is that as a church, we would grow in this, that we would grow in our understanding of God's love for us, that we would apprehend it in a real way, and that in turn, it would overflow in genuine, sincere, deep love for each other. This letter of 1 Peter is all about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our lives. It's an incredible, it's unbelievable, it's a crazy claim to make. And yet it has the power to transform and reshape our lives. The resurrection calls us to put all of our hope into the future. The resurrection helps us trust in Jesus' life and teaching. And the resurrection calls us to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, making yourself known to us for dying the death we deserve so we can share in resurrection life. And we ask that you just take root in us, in our community, in our families, um, that you help us to grasp on to the living hope that is the resurrection. And we give you permission to, to shape our lives, to help us to trust you, to be obedient to you, and help us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.